Hi, this is Chris Westfall, and this is the FAI Weekly Podcast. Over the past several months, tens of thousands of workers from Hollywood writers, actors, hotel workers, drivers, and now auto workers have organized job actions in an effort to demand higher pay and improve benefits and working conditions. According to reports, more than 300,000 workers have walked off their jobs, earning the movement the name Hot Strike Summer. In this episode of the podcast, we speak with Ethan Ruin, a researcher on the intersection of financial reporting, accounting, and income equality. Dr. Ruin is an associate professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, and we discuss how the summer of strikes may help further define the current debate around human capital disclosure. So, so Professor Run, thanks for taking the time uh, today. Uh, hopefully, we can dive a little bit into some of the issues that are going on in the labor market, obviously, because it's top of mind, what's going on with the UAW and, and others. But maybe uh, we can start off a little bit of background about yourself, uh, what you're and where you are right now and what you're focusing on. Sure. First, thanks so much for having me, Chris. Yeah, it's a pretty exciting time to be talking about these topics. Um, so yeah. I am an associate professor at Harvard Business School, where I teach a course called Reimagining Capitalism. And uh, my PhD was in accounting from Columbia. My research focus is on measurement, management, and disclosure of human capital, broadly speaking. Um, more and more, I've been taking a focus on two sides of this, the trying to understand what might be coming down the pipe from the SEC in terms of disclosure, and also thinking about how we can improve outcomes for low-wage workers and improve worker engagement. Great. Yeah. And that's really right up the alley of what we're trying to talk about. And obviously, you know, there's a lot going on in labor activity right now and um, with uh, United Auto Workers and what's going on in, in, in um, SAG and, and Hollywood. Uh, so there's been a great deal of, you know, strike activity and a lot of labor activity over the past year. Uh, and and that's even got a, its own moniker. It's called the Summer of Strikes, which you know obviously is going into the fall. But maybe you could start off sort of level setting. What do you think? What do you think has changed, or even changed about the economy and the labor force that's created this atmosphere? Yeah, I mean the Summer of Strikes. I wish it was. You know, if only the Mets could say the same thing. But that's not the case. <laughs> you know, I, I think that you know it, it's really hard to pinpoint one thing because there's just such a confluence of factors that have occurred at once. And so I'm hesitant to assign any causality, but you can go down a pretty detailed rabbit hole. I mean, the labor market's been tight for a really long time and firms are starting to see that in their abilities to grow and operate. And I, I work with one organization that has 15,000 job openings in the United States. They can't grow because they can't hire low wage workers. And part of the reason they can't hire low wage workers is because they pay low wages and don't offer much opportunity for these people to grow. And so we've seen that part of it, that the, I guess the isolation and lack of opportunity for the people that we need at the bottom of the pipeline. Um, in addition, you know, another example, turning just to U, the UAW, uh, it's just technology is catching up with us as well. All of a sudden we're moving to this hmm. EV future and it's going to revamp how cars are manufactured with a lot less people, a lot less middle middle class jobs being offered, a lot less, fewer of those UAW jobs and a lot more at the very bottom of the pyramid, the miners and the people making pennies a day as opposed to multiple dollars, uh, multiple dollars an hour. Yeah. And, and what I'm struggling with is, is trying to see like what the, um, 
this exact moment, right? Because I mean, there's been uh, over the past, uh, you know, couple decades, there's been you know changes in the economy, whether it's you know NAFTA or you know the shift in in um, you know demographics and. Um, why, why do you think at this particular moment, uh, these industries is, is just yeah, it's, everything's happening? At once? I, I think, it, I mean, that's part of it, you know, cause, but you're right. It does feel like we've really hit this tipping point. And, you know, if I were to think about what I would ascribe as the biggest driver, it was probably just how COVID forced us to rethink what work is and how work is done. And mm-hmm. so all of a sudden, you know, you have people realizing, reshifting their priorities, thinking more about their families, spending more time with their families, realizing that the 12 hours a day they spent outside of the home working and commuting didn't necessarily have to be done that way. Um, We also saw that the low wage workers, the people who are most affected by these strikes right now, were also considered essential workers at the time. And right. you know, they were considered essential workers in name, but very little, very not very much in action. And so you know, when you go to a restaurant right now, when I go to a restaurant right now, I see that service has declined. And part of that is because these people realize that the minimum wage they're making at these jobs is just not worth it. Um, another aspect of the pandemic that I think is pretty interesting is that uh, Amazon has kind of created a near monopsony in terms of employing many of these workers. So Amazon hired mm. more people in 2020 than the rest of the S&P 500 combined. Um, and so all of a sudden, you first of all, there's this option, this seemingly limitless option for people interested in you know benefits and $18 an hour. Um, and Amazon also has this huge benefit that it is a retail company with technology margins. And so it can afford to be the highest payer in this industry um, among in competition for these low wage workers. Right. So I, I want to get a little bit more specific, especially for the audience that we're talking to, and that's around accounting and disclosures and, and how corporations address it. Uh, you wrote an article in Harvard Business Review back in uh, 2019, and, and you talked about a little bit about the, the connection between accounting and, and, and some of the labor issues. And I think it's specifically the problem with accounting and employees as costs instead of assets. Mm-hmm. Could you explain a little bit about that? thesis yeah, so and, and and current accounting policy. I imagine that much of your audience will 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 be knowledgeable about this. But I you know I, I think yeah. that today, you know, using the financial statements to value a firm at this point is kind of like, I don't know, sticking with the UAW theme, you know, trying to fix uh you know a Tesla Model Y using a manual for a Model T. You know, it's just yeah. on the outside the company looks the same, but when you look under the hood, you know, we are every company is a knowledge company right now. Every company is in large part driven by their employees. Their employees are almost always by far their largest expense. And Hmm. I say this, but I don't really know it for a fact because firms don't have to disclose any of this information. So in 2017, companies were started to require, were were first required to disclose their CEO pay ratio. There's not a ton of evidence saying that was a particularly meaningful disclosure. Um, but that's right. all we know about every employee except the CEO at this point. So there's the disclosure side, which is hugely problematic. But there's also a thing about how do we treat it, even if we were to disclose this, because employees are not assets. Um, you, you don't mm. own them. And so anything you invest in them can disappear disappears when they walk out the door. So right. everything that we know about employees is buried into cost of goods and selling general administrative costs. Um, and so 
we don't have the disclosure side of it. That creates another problem, which is that managers, because of these disclosure rules, managers are not very incentivized to invest in their workforce. You know, if, I, I would say, like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if a manager were to treat uh, the investment in a plant or a factory like they do employees, it would be really hard to make the case because you'd expense it. You'd expense the entire cost in year T. And if I'm a manager, you know, if I'm a CEO and I have a six year horizon and I can buy a factory now that will cost me $30 million and I'll recoup it seven years down the road, but I have to expense it all today. There's no way I'm going to take that as my earnings. And that's basically what we do with training or any kind of investment in employees. So why is this kind of a big question, but why is that? I mean, why is um, the the regulations or disclosures around this? So is it because it's tied to an earlier time where it wasn't a service economy or a knowledge economy? Or um, is it something where investors were asking for something specific that just wasn't translated well? How... I guess the why. Why is it yeah, like this? This is this is one of the joys of being an academic is that I get to <laughs> examine all of these problems and crit- criticize them, and I don't have to do anything about it. Fix it. But <laughs> um, I think you know, part of it is yeah that our modern accounting system was developed at a time when the economy was primarily agriculture and manufacturing, and so you know, mm-hmm. employees were much closer to cogs in the wheel than they are now, and so accounting for them was arguably less important because they all tended to do something very similar. Um, Mm -hmm. The other side of it, and this is the joys of academia, is that it's really hard to to figure out what to disclose and even to create uniform disclosures across firms. So when the SEC amended Reg SK in 2020, they explicitly said, we're not going to even define human capital because it's going to vary by firm, it's going to vary across time within firms. And they're right. You know, what matters today isn't necessarily going to matter tomorrow. And so, you know, do you say is total wages important? Probably. But in a vacuum, it's probably not all that helpful. You need other context around it. Same thing with investing in training. So this large company that I talked about with uh, 15,000 openings, one of the things they tried to do to improve retention was um, increased training for low-wage workers. And it didn't move the needle mm-hmm. at all, but then they realized that it was mostly compliance training. They weren't training them for the jobs they wanted. They were training them for the jobs they had. Mm-hmm. And so you know, if, if a firm were to disclose just their training costs, um, it's not all that meaningful. You, know, you need to know what kind of training they're getting. Right. Um, and so thinking about you know, putting a single number on human capital, in, on any aspect of human capital, is probably impossible to do in a way that's really meaningful. So that's interesting. So, I mean, given that, you know, is there anything or what could policymakers do to change the impact of that and and, um, how would investors react? Uh, I I assume that has a lot to do with the the thesis behind sustainability accounting. And and, and so I, I guess specifically, what does that, what needs to happen? Oh, so, so many things. I think, you know, mm-hmm. to, to make that question a little more tractable, Chris, I, I think, you know, yeah. do you believe that it's, regulation is going to solve this or do you believe that the market's going to solve this? And if you right. regulation, I think it's, you know, it's a worker's bill of rights. You know, uh, Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, he talks about the minimum wage and shows that when minimum wages increase, uh, a low cost, um, low income housing tends to, the cost of renting housing basically increases as well, suggesting that when when you know the, these supposed benefits to workers are actually captured by the capital owners, um, so you would need you know rent control, minimum wages, 
reliable scheduling, a whole host of things within a worker's bill of rights. Um, I think that's arguably less feasible right now, given the political climate, right. than you know regulation around disclosure. And so I think if we can start disclosing information such as you know, turnover, what companies are paying their workers, um, you know, what they're spending on training, what percentage of their workforce is full-time versus contingent. Um, we can start building and testing hypotheses on how how companies can should should be treating their workers. And right now we just we don't have the data to test those hypotheses. Since 1931, Financial Executives International has been the leading advocate for the views of corporate financial management. Its more than 10,000 members hold policymaking positions as chief financial officers, chief accounting officers, controllers and treasurers at companies from every major industry. And FEI enhances its members' professional development through peer networking, career management services, conferences, research, and publications. Join FEI today to network with key influencers, understand emerging issues, advocate for corporate finance, and boost your career opportunities. Both individual and corporate membership options are available. Go to www.financialexecutives.org and click on Become a Member or look for the link in this episode's show notes. Yeah, and and I, I totally get where you're coming from, you know, save for a large like 1930-ish sort of like labor movement change and in, in, in anticipation in, in the way things are done. But um, what would you say, because this is something that we're constantly coming up against, uh, especially for FEI members, is there are these theoretical things you can do and in term, and even in within policy, you know, where you talk about disclosure of, of certain um, compensation or employment metrics, and then you get a, you hit against the, well, how do you practically do that? And does that actually address the issue? So I, I guess the, how do you get across the criticism of it's going to take a lot of data that we don't have, it's going to take a lot of work that we don't have resources for. What, what's your answer to that? Yeah, so I, I actually I have a forthcoming project right now um, where we interviewed uh, chief human resource officers and the likes about this topic, about why, you know, why they disclose what they disclose on human capital and mm-hmm. why they don't disclose more. And the, you know, one of the real impediments is, well, two impediments. First, they're not going to disclose anything that makes them look bad because they don't have to. And right. second, um, even the stuff that makes them look good, it, the data are really hard and costly to collect. You know, a lot of these firms right. have multiple systems across multiple countries and just getting them to talk to one another is really hard. Part of that comes from the fact that there's, different laws around data collection in different countries. Um, but mm. part of it is also that they just lack the internal systems. But that alone is pretty insightful. If you have you know, a company that isn't carefully tracking how much they're paying employees, um, that should be a telling piece of information. Mm. That being said, like, I think um, getting, to, getting to a part of this, uh, one of the... Uh, you know, one of the big concerns is that company, a lot of companies are probably going to do this wrong before they get it right. And right. we require disclosures. We need some kind of learning curve. And how do we go about doing that? How do we go about you know, separating the innocent errors from the malicious, malicious misstatements is, is another whole can of worms. 
Yeah, I can imagine. I feel like I'm um, just creating more problems than answers here, Chris. Yeah. No, I totally. But these are the, the big questions that everybody's sort of asking in, in terms of this. Are there any industries in, in your mind that are more uh, susceptible to these problems of, of measurement and disclosure around human capital than others? Uh, um, maybe you can talk. Yeah. Oh, the short answer, all of them. I, th- I think yeah. it really is, um, you know, I, I I think uh, like as I learn more about this, I, I realize that human capital is vital to every firm. It's just vital in different ways. And so if you think about um, an industry like retail, I want information about turnover. I want information mm-hmm. about the percentage of workers that are full time. Uh, I want information on their total compensation. But um, you know, turnover in a vacuum is not all that helpful. I you know if I'm looking at the turnover of Target, I probably won't tell me much. It'll probably be really high. Right. And if I looked at it, I'd be like, oh my goodness, that's ridiculous. But then I could compare it to Walmart. I can compare it to TJX. And all of a sudden I get a sense of who's better at retaining their employees. Uh, if you think about the more knowledge-based economy um, industries like pharma or technology, there I'd want to know, you, again, I think percentage of contingent workforce is really important, but in a different way on the retail side, it might be beneficial to have a lot more part-time or uh contract workers because it shifts the labor risk to the employees. And I say, I'd like this from an investor perspective, but on the tech side, I want them to own that human capital as much as they possibly can. So I'd want less of that. I, I you know, instinctively want less of that um, when I look at those kinds of companies. But I'd also want to know, you know, how many PhD scientists they have on staff. What mm-hmm. are they being paid? You know, just a uh, is there a way that these companies can disclose information that is relevant both within the company and can also give me greater insights into the entire labor market in which they compete? One quite uh, follow up to that, and, and I was trying to think of different industries and 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 a particular industry that is going through sort of like sort of the uh, labor crisis. Uh, one that comes to mind is. Um, uh, movies <laughs> and, 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 and there's a whole, like, if you look into a little bit, there's a whole theory behind Hollywood accounting, right. And, and, and how that like changes the perceptions of, um, so, so I, I guess the question is of that, is that sort of what you're talking about? Because, um, you know, it, it's, it's an accounting, uh, issue that rather it, it sort of morphs what people look at is at the balance sheet or is it um i guess uh what you were saying too early we were speaking earlier about the disruption that you know artificial intelligence and and other practices are having on the workforce does that make sense to you yeah and uh you know i i think on the former you know it is very much this challenging accounting issue we used to teach a case on netflix and its shift from physical DVDs to streaming. Um, right. And we had, we had to stop teaching it because um, you know, 20-somethings these days don't really know what a DVD is. <laughs> but, um, but the issue was that, you know, if you account for the physical asset that is the DVD, it's, you know, a few pennies. Um, whereas, like, how do you account for the streaming? And it is, you know, the content library. It's really, really hard. It's impossible to measure the actual value of that. And so that's why you do cost accounting. You know, you use the cost, the dollars it costs to create it to mm-hmm. account for it because you don't really know how much it's going to generate, how long it's going to generate. Uh, and so again, you reading, trying to value Netflix, reading its 10K is a fool's errand. Right. That being said, you know, 
you you talk about the other side of it, which is the technological advancements, which are changing everything. On the AI side, I am way too scared to weigh in on that because I just don't know what's going to happen there. But going back to the you know um, the auto industry, there we're starting to get a real sense that a like many many companies underestimated how quickly EVs would grow within the right. market. And you know that's going to disrupt not just the auto industry, but so many other industries. You know, all of the suppliers are going to be impacted. We're going to see you know it's going to impact the technology industry and every other industry uh, competing for these uh, minerals. And I mean, I think about my mechanic. I bought an electric car. I love my mechanic. I bought uh, an EV a year and a half ago, and I've been to my mechanic once because Massachusetts still requires you to do an emissions <laughs> test, even if you have an electric vehicle. But hmm. so yeah, so you so again, it's it's you know it's a lot of guesswork and understanding the economy. And this is really what fundamental analysis always has been. I just right. the uncertainty has grown and the how that uncertainty is reflected in regulated filings has also shrunk. Yeah. And that gets to sort of like my final, like all encompassing question, which is, you know, there, you know, when it gets to this audience, you know, a lot of our members are, are, are dealing with sustainability accounting metrics and implementation and they're just coming off or just you know the sec is going to come out with some rules on carbon um you know in in the looks like next spring um but uh that get goes on into the whole question of of where you're talking about human capital and measuring human capital um do, do you feel there are sustainable accounting practices that sort of address the issues that you're bringing up so, first of all, I believe that the SEC will be proposing within the next couple of weeks, we should see oh, okay. a proposal on human capital as well with additional quantitative metrics. Uh, fingers crossed. I, I feel like I've been saying that for more than a year now and it still hasn't happened, but it looks like it might <laughs> actually happen now. Um, but, you know, I think right now the current accounting practices make matters worse. I, I, I am, I've become increasingly pessimistic about the current disclosure environment largely mm. because it's unregulated. So I have um I, I have work coming out where this uh interviews with chief human resource officers and we interviewed 16 or 17 large companies all doing this kind of disclosure. And every single one of them said something along the lines of, I'd be an idiot if I disclosed anything that made me look bad at this point. Mm. Um, so they are disclosing when we think about on the quantitative side, they're disclosing things that they know make them look good. And they're also disclosing things that they know they're good at managing because they realize it's a commitment device. If they start disclosing the percentage of women in management today, they're going to have to disclose that every year going forward. And so they right. know they're like, we've got a handle on this. We're going to do OK. But we don't have the complete picture because we have very little comparison because the bad firms aren't disclosing this information. And so there's this huge lack of comparability, which just creates a, you know, additional uncertainty in the market. Um, and I hope I hope this will be cured with regulation in the near future. We're seeing some movement in the EU. We're seeing some movement in the U.S. Um, but again, I you know I don't envy the regulators either right now because I can think of you know I can think of twenty metrics in human capital that I think would be important and relevant. How do you pick the four that you really like that you want every company to disclose? That's why Gary Gensler makes the big bucks, although probably not. that's why he used to make the big bucks and now he has the big job. Yeah, used to. Not, I don't think as much <laughs> working at the SEC. Um, one question I had for you as a follow up is um, 
What does it, because there is an increasing number of companies, like there's a decreasing number of public companies and there's increasingly large number of privately held companies. I mean, how do you overcome that, um, you know, disclosure issue, especially in, in an environment where they're not subject to the same disclosure requirements? Yeah, this this breaks my heart along so many lines, uh, in part because, you know, the distributional impact of that is huge. You know, we talk about mm-hmm. in my course, my, in my research, I think a lot about inequality and inequity. And the more private companies you have, the more inequity inequality is going to grow because it's just less opportunity for people to invest in the capital of these private companies. But, um, you know, I think there, there one overlooked aspect of this is that when you look at the publicly traded companies in the U.S. right now, uh, more than half of them report a net loss. And this is mm-hmm. largely because of all of the intangibles. It's because they're spending a lot on employees, but they can't capitalize that. And so right. I think one way to do that is to increase disclosure, let company force companies or require companies to more compellingly tell the story about what their costs are and how they think about them over the long run. Um, and I think you know, what the EU is thinking about doing is also a really good idea, which is instead of requiring disclosures based on the semi-arbitrary decision about are you public or private, do it based on your revenues. Because you know, really, especially with these kinds of disclosures, these are, I mean, I truly believe that these are value relevant and investors should really care about them. But society should care about them a lot more than they care about companies or quarterly earnings. And mm-hmm. so therefore, you know, these metrics are equally relevant or even perhaps unequally relevant to investors and to employees, to citizens, to the community at large. Um, and so we should require disclosure based on that. We should require disclosure not based on you know whether you're public or private, but how much impact you have on the measures you're disclosing. And so, yeah, with the EU, they're saying if you're going to do business in the EU and you have a certain num- amount of revenue, regardless whether public or private, you're going to have to disclose. So I guess just to wrap it all up, what, what's your anticipation for, I mean, like we said, it's been a very active summer. Um, we're going through a number of strikes right now. What's your anticipation going forward into the new year? Um, do you think these uh, issues will only um, intensify or, or do you see changes happening? I, I am horrible at predicting the future, Chris. So if, if anybody's going to bet, just bet against me here. Um, <laughs> my, 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 uh, my, well, instead of talking about my guess, let me talk about my hopes. My hope hmm. is that this will lead to continued rethinking of the employer-employee contract and a continued rethinking of what employees need, how companies can provide it, and how they can do so in a way that creates shared value. And to give you an example, one thing I will put money on is um, this growing interest in sharing ownership with employees. We see this now at the private mm-hmm. equity industry is making a huge push here. KKR is now um, giving a broad-based employee ownership at every company they buy. Um, and we're starting to see conversations about this within public companies as well, thinking about you know, can we reward employees with shares in some way that a lightens our wage burden and B creates value for both the employees and the companies. So um, that's that's I hope that will happen. But I, I my my guess is that this topic is just going to become more and more contentious. Uh, there will be more and more uncertainty, and hopefully that will lead to you know people willing to take big gambles and start risk and start taking risks to address them in ways that make us all better off. 
Terrific. Those are my questions. I really want to. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank uh, you very much. No problem. If we're still recording, just just so everyone else knows, we're doing this. We're talking about workers' rights on the weekend right now. <laughs> but uh, I, I really appreciate the time, Chris. It was really, it was really nice to catch up with you. No, and as I said before, I, I appreciate the worker sol- solidarity by um, helping me on a weekend. So really appreciate it. Thank oh, you very good. much. Thank you.